people who sit down to write a book in which they know everything that they're going to say, those are much less interesting books to me than the one who allows us, you know, pulls back the curtain and shows the vulnerability of the writing process. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Jessica Hooten Wilson is Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas. She's a much sought after speaker and the author of books about Fyodor Dostoevsky, Walker Percy, and Flannery O'Connor. Spring of 2022 will see the release of her new book, The Scandal of Holiness Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. The academic world is a rich source of sad stories told for laughs. I thought it'd be fun and instructive to hear Jessica Hooten Wilson tell some of hers. Jessica Hooten Wilson, I'm so glad you are on the Habit Podcast, or more specifically, on Sad Stories Told for Laughs. Thank you. Yeah, I hope my former misery can provide some levity for others. Yeah, levity, and then we'll probably bring it. You know, we'll bring it in for a landing with with uh, be be thinking of some really deep and insightful things you can say toward the end. Oh, Jessica, thank that's you. That, that's an important part of the format here. So don't don't neglect that. Okay. Um, I one reason I wanted to have you on this series was I, I wanted to talk to, to an academic, um, and and talk about some of the the specific you know chagrin faced by academics. Um, I think a good place to start will probably probably be imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think most writers experience. Writers of all kinds, I would think, experience imposter syndrome. Um, but I also know every, I think every academic I've ever talked to has experienced imposter syndrome. Yeah, well, I think that uh, most human beings experience imposter syndrome, well, right? Yeah, right. We assume that we're going to get to this place in life where what we set out to do, we're going to just know how to do and do it well. And that's, that's the goal with academics. I mean, you call me an academic and I immediately have imposter syndrome, even being on the podcast. (laughs) But what, what can I say that will make me still sound like I'm an academic? So I, you know, it induces imposter syndrome to even hear yourself talked about that way, but especially for academics, you know, they believe their role, or at least uh, I guess I'll talk like I'm one of them we believe our role is to take all the great ideas that have come before and be passing them on to the next generation. So there's a heavy responsibility for us, especially if you're a Christian, you know, you hear the words in um, the gospels ringing in your head, you know, beware the false teachers, beware, <laughs> yeah, right. lead the children astray. They should just tie a rock around their neck and jump into the lake. Uh, so it's a heavy, it's a heavy burden that you don't want to take too lightly. Yeah. How has uh, imposter syndrome manifested in your, well, I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. you've spoken generally. I want to hear some specifics. Tell us about a time when, when you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, for me, I didn't know I was going to be an academic. That's not like I set out to be an academic. I started with being a teacher. And mm-hmm. I remember the first day of teaching, my first teaching job was I was teaching fourth grade. Okay. And I just come from Pepperdine, my undergrad degree in creative writing, and suddenly ended up in this classroom with 10 fourth graders in front of me. Um, but I, I felt like I knew what I was doing and started getting excited about teaching. Like, maybe this is what I'm meant to do. But I also realized I did not know enough to be able to teach anybody. 
And so I started taking classes in the graduate program. So that's how I ended up moving towards being an academic. It started really? because I was teaching and I didn't want to do it badly. Huh. So I started taking graduate classes, but then you get into grad school and, you know, I was a pretty much an A student in college. And I remember going to grad school and teachers being like, Hey, you, you can't write. Like maybe you should go to the, the writing center. Um, and for someone with a writing major, like this was, wow. that was humiliating to realize, wow, is there, there's just so much about writing. I didn't, I didn't know how to do, but I had, I'd always written better than many of my peers, but it's a whole nother bracket, right? When you get into grad school, there's, you just go up a level in your writing and there's more expected of you. And I think it's the same for any writer, you know, when you write for different forums or you write for mm -hmm. different audiences and, and suddenly what was worthy in one setting isn't worthy in another. Mm -hmm. Realize like you have to have the humility to be like, Oh, I, I can't write like you're wanting me to write. Um, more specifically, if I think about classes where I realized I didn't know what I was doing, aside from not knowing how to write well. Uh, I'll tell you one of my most humiliating ones. Do you know Ralph Wood? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Ralph Wood was my uh, mentor when I was in grad school. And anybody who knows Ralph, he always jokes that on the Myers-Briggs, he gets the MFSOB award. So that's <laughs> uh, letters. And so he's a pretty harsh personality. Yeah. Working, going under him is like going through boot camp. And I, my first semester with him, we were in this independent study. So it was just me and him. I thought, there's no way you can't pass an independent study. <laughs> and I was incredibly wrong. I turned in a paper and he emailed me and said, you know, maybe grad school is not your thing. Maybe you shouldn't get a doctorate. Uh, maybe you need to try a different route. Go back to teaching elementary school. <laughs> incredibly uh, real with me. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I, you know, after that first semester with him, I, I took, I took that paper and I spent all of Christmas break going through it and rewriting the entire thing. I mean, I spent an entire month cause I thought I'm going to give it my all. Yeah. And if he still says the same thing, then yeah, I'm going to go back to teaching elementary school. But if I can give everything to this assignment, and then I come out on top with him thinking that I can still do this. Then I'll stay in it. And it was kind of like just this litmus test of like, wow. can I stay here? Do I deserve to be here? Huh. Yeah. I guess that means you came back and he was wowed. It was, it was, <laughs> is this what happened? It was, <laughs> it was more like, oh, this is better. <laughs> so, Maybe you shouldn't um, quit yet. <laughs> so it at least bought me some time to think, you know, well, maybe then I can improve. I can get better yeah. at this. And, and yeah. I give it all my all. And then that's, this is my job. Grad school is going to be my job. And it's different than undergrad where it feels like in college, the learning is like one of the things you do. Mm -hmm. Right? I know it's supposed yeah. to be the whole, but yeah. realistically, there's so many other things you do in college. The academics is just like one part of it. Yeah. But in grad school, there's no other reason to be there. Like, you don't give it everything. Yeah. Right. What are you doing during that yeah. time? By the way, Ralph Wood looked over my Flannery O'Connor biography, The Terrible Speed of Mercy, um, and was very helpful. Uh, but he, he could be a little micro, you know? Like, at one point, he, he said, maybe you should say start. Uh, maybe you should say begin instead of start here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a 40-year-old man. <laughs> I know how to make a sentence. <laughs> I published several books. Uh, 
And, uh, but you know, he, he was, he was exceedingly helpful by the way. And, and I had to sometimes just ignore some of the, Oh, well, I mean, he, he, you have to have rhinoceros skin to work with Ralph. I mean, I, you know, my, I got to my dissertation with Ralph and this was, let's see, this was May. I was supposed to graduate in May. So it was two mm-hmm. weeks before I was supposed to graduate and he had, he had been on leave for part of it. So I just handed him my whole dissertation expecting he was going to like approve it and move on. <laughs> and instead he wrote red all over the first 50 pages of 200 maybe. And, and in block letters wrote S H I T. And he said, I will not sign my names to this at all. You can't graduate. And this was like a month before graduation. And of course, then I went to the graduation, you know, I, I went to friends and I was crying and blah, how am I going to do this? Um, I already had a job lined up, tenure track, blah, blah, blah. And so I had to redo it the whole summer to graduate in August. I had to redo my entire dissertation again, a second time. I mean, it really, he definitely puts you through the ringer. And when I finally graduated, Ralph showed up at the graduation ceremony and said, I'm so glad you didn't finish me off with a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> So um, he knew he was rough. He knew he was hard. Yeah. Um, was your dissertation better? It was. Yeah. I mean, it, it really was boot camp to go through it with Ralph. Like I would not be where I am today had I not worked with Ralph. So it was worth it in the end. Lots of tears, lots of him making me feel like I was never going to get through this. But at the same time, it's there's nowhere else I wanted to be. I This is what I wanted to be learning how to do was to communicate these ideas, to think deeply and, uh, to write well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. I, okay. So I guess you did struggle with some imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm an external processor. So I also opened my mouth so many times throughout semesters only to realize I had said something that was completely wrong or, mm-hmm. Um, just completely off the mark. And I, I envied those people who were introverts who could just sit there and then at the right opportune moment, say something brilliant. Yeah. Right. You know, whereas I'm just like, I will just keep spitting and maybe there's a gym in the middle of this rambling that I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. Is that still true? You still think that's the way you, you do in professional settings? Well, professional, they give you the opportunity usually to write down your talk ahead of time. Sure. So for the most part, I can usually <laughs> save myself in professional settings by, by thinking over things. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in a seminar, one of the joys of being in a seminar with students is they kind of mine through what you're saying. They, they take it that you're probably going to say something worthwhile, mm-hmm. you know, especially because they spend a whole semester with you or the best yes. students spend years taking your classes. Yeah. They, they know that the jewels are coming. Mm-hmm. In grad school, they were probably fewer and far, far more. <laughs> yeah, right. By the way, is that how you write? I mean, do, do you do you write that way too? Sort of write down whatever comes and then and then sift through to see what's true and. A hundred percent, yes. I and I t- actually tell students to do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I don't know if I got this metaphor for somewhere else because I've been using it for so long. It feels like it's mine. I have no idea. But I used to tell students, you know, just just spit your dirt and water at me. We'll mix it together and make just mud. And it'll just look like, what have I written? It's nothing but mud, you mm-hmm. know? And then I tell them, then we'll take it and we'll shape it. We'll put it on the potter's wheel. We'll spin it out. But that's a process. That's how I go through. I just spit everything out first. Yeah. That's what I tell people to do, but I don't do that very well. Oh, you plan it all? 
I mean, I, I, I don't, I tend not to get this, to write the sentence down until I, you know, until it says something close to what I wanted to say. And although I tell people to do it a different, I mean, I think it's wiser to do it a different way, but you know, you get in, you fall into habits and that's the habit I've fallen into. Well, and you talk about imposter syndrome. I mean, if I did that, the blank page would probably censor me just, Mm -hmm. you know, because I I would feel like anything I had to put out there would have to be the level of Flannery O'Connor or the level of Ralph Wood. And I know that my first thoughts are not at that Mm -hmm. that bar each time. So, yeah. Um, Speaking of imposter syndrome, my dissertation director, a woman named Margaret Doody, um, she was my original one. Um, um, you know, after I would had came in, you know, moaning for the umpteenth time, she says, you know, she said, you've got to stop making these imaginary tragedies. And and so that, you know, that phrase imaginary tragedies has made it into our daily, um, almost daily, you know, conversation around here. Oh, um, that's fantastic. I love that. Yeah. I feel like I had real tragedies with Ralph though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Um, by the way, real quick, what was your dissertation about? I, I, I think you've told me, but I forgot. Well, it, yeah, it turned into the book, Giving the Devil His Due. That's yeah. my dissertation. Even though they said, please don't mention the word dissertation anywhere. We can't sell this book. But right. um, but it was Flannery O'Connor and Dostoevsky. Uh-huh. So. Okay, so that was just your, your dissertation. Yeah. Um, it's too late now, right? I mean, well, and then published, Ralph, it's out there. Yeah, Ralph wanted to make it into um, Walker Percy and Dostoevsky, and I wanted to get my job that I had tenure track, you know, position yeah. uh, during the recession. And so I went ahead and did that. And then the next year wrote Walker Percy and Dostoevsky. So my second book, people always ask like, why didn't you take these 200 page books and like make one? Well, mm-hmm. you know, sake of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, I was talking to um, Andy Osinga in, in, in uh, an episode of sad stories told for laughs that I don't know when this is going to run, but it was, the week you and I are talking is when this episode runs. And we, we were talking about this idea that for the performer, you know, he's a, he's a singer songwriter. Um, and this is true for a writer, for a performer, you know, you, you've got to put um, all of, it's, it's not going to work if you don't put all of yourself mm-hmm. out there. Um, and yet, you know, it's not going to work if you don't put your whole self out there it might not work even if you do put your whole self out there. Um, and then for the performers, they're, they're out there, you know, giving it their all for people who, and the audience is, doesn't, I mean, by definition, you know, is not required. They're required to pay $15 to buy their ticket and spend a couple of hours. Um, but that's, that's, it's not the audience's fault. It's just, you know, it's, it's the way, the way the world works. And um and I've I've been wondering. Sometimes since then, I thought, and since I knew you were coming up, I've, I've thought a little bit about how that applies in a teaching setting. Um, you know, you as a teacher, you're called upon to put uh, a lot of yourself out there, and the students, you know, probably to a lesser extent. I mean, I, I would say to a lesser extent. Um, if nothing else, it's because, you know, the students are taking five or six, you know, four, five, six classes and you're, you're teaching one subject and they're, you know, they have to also be invested in physics and all these other things. Um, you got anything to say about that? Any thoughts on? Yeah, sure. So it does depend on your audience 
right? So what you were saying, somebody paying to be there, you know, with the students, it depends on what your goal is as the academic. There's professors I know who they walk in, they're going to teach the same thing every time. They don't mm-hmm. care whether it's a different class makeup or a different relationship. So the way that I teach is not that. I don't go in and just rehash what I've said before. I, I'm not just a talking head that somebody paid tuition for. Mm-hmm. I want to know how they've responded to the text, which is a much more riskier venture because sure. the class conversation can take off in any direction if it depends on who's in the room with you. Mm-hmm. And you have to be ready to go any direction, right? And you have to ask questions that you're not going to know the answer to. And that's going to yeah. be a risky venture. But in, but in that sense, yeah, I put myself, I put myself out there completely. I, it, I'm always horrified really to hear what students tell me that they've written down in their notes. I mean, they, um, they'll collect things that I say and it's yeah. like, well, I didn't have time to practice that one. Like I, yeah. I don't, that's true. What I just said. Um, yeah. and, and you have to be willing to do that. That's part of the learning process. It's actually what I ask of my students, you know, be, you're not going to learn if you're not ready to be made a fool of, mm-hmm. right. If yeah. you think, know everything already, then you're not going to learn anything. And, and I would say, you know, this is a podcast for writers. The writing life should be the same. Mm-hmm. The people who sit down to write a book in which they know everything that they're going to say, those are much less interesting books to me than the one who allows us, you know, pulls back the curtain and shows the vulnerability of the writing process that I was asking this question because I couldn't decide I'm trying to think of an issue, but um, I couldn't. I couldn't understand a problem, and mm-hmm. so I'm working through it, showing both sides, showing how it really related to me in my life, and then maybe coming up with some solutions, or maybe not. Maybe this just showing the process. But I think teaching the best teaching does that as well. Is takes that risk. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, Tish Harrison Warren, in, in an earlier episode of this podcast, said pretty much the same thing, you know, that, that a, a good book is one in which the, the writer doesn't just say, oh, I know some answers, which I'm now going to put into words, but rather I've got a question. And, yeah. you know, her question in um, Prayer in the Night was, you know, if I can't be sure God is going to, um, you know, make everything okay for me, right. how do I trust God? And that wasn't a rhetorical question that she knew the answer to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I love that book. I love Tish. Isn't that a great book? Yeah. And that's, a, and that's a really good example of the kind of risk that you have to take because she's just working through something that, that's personal and that matters yeah. that she doesn't have all the answers for. And I think it's even riskier for her probably being a, a priest than being a teacher yeah. because there's expectations that you know the answer. But I would say the same thing for, for teaching along the same lines. Like, hey, I'm taking this class you're doing in literature. Don't you know everything yeah. about this book? I mean, haven't you figured it all out by now? Yeah. But yeah. you're like, oh, I'm not Dostoevsky. I don't <laughs> I can't tell you everything that he was thinking. or, And I don't think he knew everything. I think that's why it's still a good book. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, it, on, this, on the subject of, you know, us, I think it's so important to to think of teaching in terms of here's this thing I love, and I love you people, and I'd like to introduce y'all to each other, mm-hmm. and I was, that's the way I, I try to think about writing that way, too. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but you also know that you again you have to risk because there's going to be people who don't 
get what you're doing and they don't. And, and, and I will say you're, you're talking about talking to students, writing for students. That's a completely different game than writing for academics. Uh-huh. You know, I, I absolutely hate writing for academics and I'm not a huge fan of even going to academic conferences because of the different kind of audience. It's not about love. You know, I, I don't want to harp too much on academics. That's not what this is for. But um, if you're approaching a book without that level of love mm -hmm. and you're looking for faults and you're looking for the formatting to be wrong or the citations to be wrong or a hole in the argument, like you're yeah. going to find what you're looking for. Yeah. You know, but if you approach it like I'm somebody's trying to share what they love with me, then you're probably going to approach it with love. There's going to be a greater outcome there. It's going to bear a lot more fruit. Yeah. So I, I prefer talking to students than I do other academics most mm -hmm. of the time. Yeah. Um, I, uh, this is a slight change, change of subjects. Now I want to talk about my, uh, my humiliations as a teacher, which maybe perhaps will, will, uh, open, open some humiliations up for you for, for the okay. delectation of, of the audience. Um, I, uh, I had a, at one of the schools I taught, not my most, not the most recent school that I've been teaching at, but a previous school that, that shall remain nameless. Um, one of my students, I don't get on Twitter very often, but, but I got, you know, a, a student tweeted something at me, you know, nice, pleasant, whatever. They, it was just like, Hey, Dr. Rogers, wouldn't you like to see this? Probably a picture of an alligator. I don't know. And, um, and the, and so I started looking at his friends one of whom was one of my students. And I mean, a student in the same class. And she had tweeted that day, just sitting here in class while my professor drones on about a bird. And we had been talking about, um, uh, I, I, think the, I think the, um, the Emily Dickinson poem about the, you know, the robin comes down the walk and eats the, eats the wormhole. And, um, and it, it was just so shocking because I thought, you know, I, I was up there. Hey, everybody, this is an amazing poem. And I was just, you know, I just thought that was so, so wonderful and fun. And aren't these students lucky that they get to hear me talk about this bird? You know? um, and uh, it, it, it hurt my feelings. It, it was it was one of those moments where, you know, I, I was I, I didn't have the words for it at the time. But it's what, what we were talking about earlier. You know, you're out here putting yourself putting your loves out there. And then, and then there's somebody in the back row just saying, "Will this guy ever?" <laughs> I mean, I, I, when I started teaching literature, I thought, "Oh, this will be so fun to to help people love what I love." Mm -hmm. And I had to quit teaching King Lear, for instance, because I could never make anybody love King Lear like I did, and it just it just hurt too much, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to say that I was just, you know, I'm just such a good teacher that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not the case. And, and it really, it's really hard, those students, especially that you just can't get on board. I remember I was teaching, um, Marie de France, her lays. I don't know if you've read oh, these. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Jonathan, you would love those. Like really? write that down. Yeah, they're so good. Um, what is it? 12th century. I'm not a medievalist. And, um, I think it's 12th century. I haven't taught them in a little while, but they're these little lays, these little French poems, old French, and they tell stories about courtly love, but they're kind of mocking the tradition. Mm -hmm. 
And so she's a Christian. So courtly love misses the point of what real love is supposed to do, right? That love is in its earthly form should lead us towards heavenly love, not away from heavenly love. So lust leaves us away. Okay. So, but one of them is the story of a werewolf. And so I remember teaching this story and I loved this, this werewolf story and it's really humorous. And a student came in, she was going to write her paper on it. She loved it too. And the start of the paper was um, back when there were werewolves. So I had to say, well, you know, there weren't actually werewolves in the 12th century. And I thought I had explained this fully. She comes back into my office, maybe two days later, Tuesday, Thursday class. And she has restarted her paper um, back in the 12th century when they thought there were werewolves. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, like, okay, I'm going to try this again. Let's see if I can get through to this one student. Um, brings her paper back in like a week later. Like back in the time where there weren't werewolves and nobody thought there were werewolves, this woman keeps writing about werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I just I just absolutely missed that moment. Yeah, right. Her. So she, she had completely missed anything I'd said about the importance of the werewolf as a motif. And, yeah, right. You know, yeah. what it was doing and the story and why it mattered. And <laughs> yeah, you know, when we first started talking about you coming on this podcast, you said, Hey, I don't want to start. I don't want to tell stories that makes people look make my, makes my students seem mm-hmm. like I'm making fun of my students. And, and I've, I've wondered if I know, you know, teachers like to get around. I mean, there, there are teachers in the world who like to sit around and talk about, you know, dumb things their students have said and done. And, I I've, I wonder if part of it is it it is whenever whenever my students you know miss the point completely I it, I feel a I feel like I have somehow failed and I'm yeah. wondering if let's make fun of our students as a way of just easing the pain a little bit from <laughs> yeah the Schadenfreude um yeah I, yeah I don't know. It, that's a that's an interesting idea because I hadn't actually thought of it that way before. I just remember when I first started teaching, I don't think I pointed the arrow at myself ever. I just thought, mm-hmm. wow, everyone is dumber than when I started, mm-hmm. you know, when yeah. I got out of college five years right. ago, whatever it was. Right. Um, but then but then I have realized more and more there are some people that are gonna refuse to learn too. And yeah. those are the ones you probably end up making fun of because they, they care so little. It's like you know, they're hardly there. Whereas the ones that you really care about when they miss the point, then it does. That's a huge failing. Have you read a heroes of the fourth turning the play or seen the play? So that's a great example of that because the, the play will Arbery's play, the, um, the president of this university is a former teacher at Mm -hmm. this university and her students come back to celebrate her being inaugurated as president of this college. And none of them have lived as she thought she taught them. Oh. Live. And it's like, oh, that would be so heart wrenching to have spent all this time, you know, giving yourself to your students, like you said, like laying yourself out there. You think you're bringing them along for the ride. And then they just, they completely missed the point entirely. But, but I also hope you don't peak in college. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I remember going back, I went back to Pepperdine. I don't know when this was like 10 years ago. And, um, one of my former professors was like, I, I'm really proud of you. You know, I never would have thought you would have gone anywhere after having you as a student. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was, you know, it was kind of a compliment. Um, just surprising, but, yeah. I, but you know, I think I responded the same way. Like I didn't peak in college, sir. Yeah. I, 
That's that's a great reminder. Well, maybe my my tweeter <laughs> who didn't enjoy my lecture on the bird is going to come back and, you know, I'll, I'll be thumbing through the library and see this <laughs> book about Emily Dixon's poetry. Um, this, the same that same student, this was a world lit class, um, wrote her um, on the final exam, wrote about donkey Odie. <laughs> if you had opened the book one time this semester, you would know that it's, I mean, I, I realize Don Quixote is hard to spell, but it's, but you would know it wasn't a donkey named Odie. Oh, you have to keep those. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, like I said, I think it was the same. And in this many years on, it's, it has become the same. If it wasn't the same student, then it has become the same student. Well, and I just, I wonder how many stories though, that professors tell about me, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> The moments in my education where I know I said things, they would just look at me like, have you been here the last yeah. hour? You know, yeah. um, I don't know, David Lyle Jeffrey, someone you know as well. He was another professor I had in grad school and I love him. Uh-huh. If you don't know him, oh, he's fantastic. He's um, from Canada and he has like a Scottish accent, which I can't do. And he wears these giant belt buckles because he used to work on a ranch and um, <laughs> kind of looks like a little John Wayne-ish, but he's a professor and speaks like 10 languages. So very intimidating, tall mm. guy. And he used to come into class and, you know, put his boots up on the table and, and start doing theology and literature with us. And mm-hmm. every week he would assign Bible reading to go with the literature assignment. And I was just overwhelmed. Like you said, tons of classes. You have all these other things to do. And so I neglected the Bible reading every week. Okay. And I remember one time in class, he just called me on it in the middle of class. I was espousing what I thought was brilliant mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> thoughts yeah. on the literature. And he's like, but do you remember last what we just read in the Bible? And I thought, uh, I didn't do the Bible reading. And so then he just winks at me, why not? And I was like, well, because I've read the Bible before. Mm-hmm. And said, yeah, well, that, that was the point of the Bible, to read it one time and never again. <laughs> I thought, like, it was this moment where I just wanted to bury myself under the table. Like, here I am getting a PhD in theology, and I just said, I didn't yeah. read the Bible because I'd already read it before. Yeah, right. Mm. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. And by so, the way, you, you probably wouldn't say, I already read Hamlet once. No, <laughs> you know. no. That I mean, I think that's why it's so humiliating. I, I yeah. remember I had an academic moment where a student told me they weren't going to to read Hamlet when I taught it because they'd already they'd already read it, or maybe they'd already watched the movie in high school. I can't even remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'd already seen Mel Gibson. There was no reason. To <laughs> it was me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, it, and you also bring up the point you accidentally brought up the point that, you know, I, I, I do think there's, there is uh, a phenomenon, this, you know, uh, among homeschool, classical school students that they're reading things, you know, you read Gilgamesh in, you know, sixth grade, you're not really reading Gilgamesh yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you got to read it several times over yeah. before you do something, but that's hard to tell people. I mean, they don't, you know, unless you experience it yourself, 
It's really yeah. difficult to tell somebody. It's even like when you recommend a book to someone, you know, you can't just tell them what it was about. Mm-hmm. They're not going to want to go read the book. You have to read these things to actually get why you're supposed to read them. Yeah. yeah. And you have to read them at the right, at the right time. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I, I don't, for instance, the moviegoer, I don't mm-hmm. really invite people younger than about 30 to read that, that book. It's, you know, I read it in college and I thought, okay, that's all right. That's a pretty good book. And then I read it again when I was in my thirties. I was like, oh my goodness, what a book. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Um, you have to experience it. <laughs> that's right. You know, I, I'm, so you, you said you, you think about the professors who, who heard you say something dumb. I, I'm more worried about professors who remember me saying something arrogant. Oh man. You know, and I want to come back and say, I didn't peak in college. <laughs> I've learned that, you know, 19-year-old Jonathan was not yeah. all that. Yeah. Well, and so you didn't have imposter syndrome. You. <laughs> I didn't have enough. Yeah, in college. I, I got a good dose of it by the time I got to graduate school, believe me. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, and I think the imposter syndrome is a, is a function of, of understanding what you're up against. I mean, you know, in part, right? It's, it's not, not only that, but, but um, yeah, if you don't, if, if you come to graduate school without imposter syndrome, you're a lunatic. Yeah. Well, and if you come with arrogance, I mean, so I, I'm more confident than I am suffering from imposter syndrome, but at the same time, you step in with a confidence that is unmerited and you're, mm-hmm. you're going to learn nothing. I mean, that's what I realized too, is I probably look back at my undergrad days and I didn't learn enough. Mm-hmm during that time. But then I had confidence in certain things in grad school and people shut that down real quick. They show yeah. you all the things you don't know really yeah. fast and in a way that, that it hurts, but mm-hmm. it's good. Yeah. Unearned arrogance, I think was the phrase Flannery O'Connor mm. uh, used to speak of yeah. herself. Did she, um, did she say to Billy Sessions one time, like, I'm so glad you got a PhD and I can go be stupid the rest of your life. <laughs> I think that was the letter that she wrote to Billy. <laughs> Yeah. I know the feeling. I feel like I can mis- mispronounce words all I want to. If it may correct me, I say, oh, I'm sorry. Do you have a PhD? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I feel the opposite. I'm just like, I, I don't want people to announce that I'm an academic or a PhD because I'm afraid that they're going to expect something brilliant to come out of my mouth when it's yeah. not going to. <laughs> well, I, I think the best thing about having a PhD is I'm, I'm, you reach a point where you can say, I, if, if I didn't get this book, it might be the book's problem and not mine. <laughs> right, you know, I mean, p- people think oh, yes. I'm just so dumb I didn't get that book, and I just want to say there's a maybe not. I mean, you may not be dumb. It may just be that the book wasn't, or the, this piece of writing wasn't very well done. I mean, most yeah. of the books that make it a you know get published are pretty good, but you, you run across things on the internet or little articles and magazines that just aren't that good. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's such a proliferation of things too. Mm-hmm. It's like hard to sift through all the the chaff for the wheat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right, we're, we're getting, we're about to run out of time, but I want to, I want to hear a couple of more, a little bit more humiliation from Jessica (laughs) Hooten Wilson. Um, you mentioned at one point something about a, um, you thought somebody wanted your autograph and they really just wanted to. Oh my gosh, I did. I told, see, and this is what I can't remember. I shouldn't email you because I, again, external processor, but I <laughs> process through email and I'm not joking. I'll just like, I'll just type things as I'm thinking and I hit send and then be like, what did I just send? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. So this is a really, <laughs> this is a really funny story. I've started, 
you know, writing and speaking more often and sometimes in the same places over and over again, which is Mm -hmm. really fun because then you go there and you know everybody and it's exciting. So one of the places I do that is Walker Percy Festival. Mm -hmm. So among like two to 300 people, they've started being used to seeing me and I've been to seeing most of them. They start looking really familiar to me. So it's like, you know, forming these friendships you get to see annually. But one year I went and... I just kept looking at this guy and I thought any minute he's going to come bring me one of my books and he's going to want it signed because surely like I I know his face from years before and he's going to come and like want my autograph. And I just kept waiting for it and I would see him around. And um, this was just the first day before all the, uh, the events had begun and he just kept not asking for my autograph Mm. until uh, the next day when they, announced the first speaker at the event and I realized it was JD Vance and he's famous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not actually famous. (laughs) Um, And then I had gotten his autograph a year before when I had seen him speak in California. (laughs) So I I went up to him afterwards and even told him that story because I was so embarrassed. Oh you are a verbal processor. I really am. I tell everybody <laughs> what I'm thinking. I don't hide anything. Um, that was probably even more humiliating to tell him but yeah. yeah, I really thought you wanted my autograph. <laughs> <laughs> Probably didn't even know I wrote a book. Yeah, right. Um, um, but yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, that's that's pain. I'm 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 hurting right now. <laughs> well, you know, I heard I've actually heard several of these episodes because I love them so much. I love your podcast and sad stories for laugh. You had Harrison's got key on recently yeah. and he just kept talking about the dream and like no one cares about your dream and i thought about a time in my life that was very similar to that i really wanted to study russian literature i wanted everyone to like come to me for uh-huh. the russian lit knowledge and um and most people don't because you know i, I don't speak russian that great i'm not a russianist whatever mm-hmm. i remember in grad school i was so dedicated to this i took so many courses in russian literature and by the time I got to my third one, fourth one, it was a different professor. And I got a, I got a B in the class. And I thought, what in the world? So I went, and t- went to the office of the person and said, you know, I had taken so many Russian lit classes. Like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be the Russian lit scholar that everyone talks to. And I remember the professor just looked at me and said, have you ever seen that movie, Rudy, about the football player? That- <laughs> challenge disability and um you're kind of like that you really want this but you just don't have what it takes good grief that. and i thought no one else cares about your dream you know <laughs> that was one of those moments for me that i either had to really care about what i was doing yeah. and not worry about if anybody else cared about my dream i knew it was yeah. mine yeah um well when i wrote the, the you know flannery o'connor bio every time i had to i had to get out of the habit of every day when i sat down thinking about all the people who knew knew more about her than i did yeah and it wasn't a short list by the way (laughs) it was a long list (laughs) and that was just the people i knew who knew more than i did yeah well that's what i've loved about your podcast is it's just it introduces you to this world of people who all realized they had a different way of seeing something like they were able to tell a story. Like even if everyone that you've had on your podcast was all in the same room, experiencing the same moment, in the same setting, they're bringing something else to the experience that they get to write about. Yeah. And I've loved that. Like I, I've loved imagining all the different people you've had on your episodes 
and how they would all write the same scene in a different way or the same story in a different way. And I love, I think that's the, the beautiful art of writing is it's not about who knows the most or who has the PhD or anything. Um, it's about how you've been created to respond to that moment in time. Yeah. Great. Well, Jessica Hooten Wilson, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And um, let's talk again soon. That sounds good. Thanks, Jonathan. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.